and welcome to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm your host, Adam A. Donaldson. Joining me in a bit will be Candice Lepage. And, uh, you know, if you've been to the website, you know the movie we're reviewing today. So it's a very Candice pick. Very timely, too, because in a few weeks it will be Halloween, actually in... 11 days, less than two weeks, it'll be Halloween. So, um, whatever you are planning on doing, hopefully it will be safe and COVID compliant. <laughs> Let us not have a repeat of what happened on Chancellor's Way a couple of weeks ago. Um, if you're going to go out in costume, perhaps build a nice, um, COVID-compliant mask into your costume. Perhaps be a bandit. An old West bandito or something. I don't know. Don't listen to me. Or no, listen to me. This is the radio. End Credits is a local movie show for local movie fans. We are here every Wednesday at 3 p.m. to talk about the latest in pop culture and review the newest movies, which this week will be the new horror legacy sequel, Halloween Kills, which you can now see at a theater near you, and only at a theater near you, mind you. That's going to be in the back half of the show. For the first half, we're going to continue with our series of interviews with filmmakers uh, who uh, have films in this coming November's uh, Guelph Film Festival. Uh, This week, we're going to talk to Jolene Banning, who is one of the people involved in making Spirit to Soar, which is based on Tanya Talega's book, Seven Fallen Feathers, which is about... A number of uh, murders or deaths, uh, since they haven't been uh, con- concretely defined as murders, the deaths of seven students in the Thunder Bay area and uh, how that affected the community and maybe more to the point occasionally how it didn't affect the community, at least when it came to solving the deaths. Uh, Jolene Banning is not the director of uh, Spirit to Source. She did, however, co-produce and co-host the accompanying podcast. She also did a lot of the research on Spirit to Soar, working with director uh, Tanya Talega. And um, she's very knowledgeable uh, also as a, as a journalist herself. She's worked with APTN and a couple other outlets um, as, as a journalist covering Indigenous issues. She is herself Indigenous, so she is obviously an authority on Indigenous issues. And she agreed to talk to me about Spirit to Soar and some of the issues it brings up about the systemic racism that Indigenous people face in the Thunder Bay area and uh, how the movie pertains to that. So why don't we press play on that interview right now? So Jolene Banning, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, can you talk a bit about um, how you came to be involved in Spirit the Soar? I mean, it started with uh, Tanya Talega's uh, book, and uh, she teams up with Michelle DeRossier. So when does Jolene Banning come into the picture? <laughs> when does Jolene? Um, well, it was during the initial, like the beginning phases of the the film. Her uh, Tanya and Michelle were were doing some work on it. And they had asked, Michelle suggested asking me to do some research for the film, Um, some just, you know, past news articles on the students, uh, stuff like that. So I got involved initially as a researcher and then it just expanded and it just, you know, more work and more work and 
that's how it got started. And that ended up in the podcast that you co-hosted that is kind of the companion to the film. How does the podcast and the film sort of connect? Like how, like how, how does one is, is sort of attach to the other? Well, the documentary sort of looks at what's happened since the seven fallen feathers. And it's unfortunately not a lot. <laughs> but when we look at um, part of that book, The Seven Fallen Feathers, like in there, Elder Sam Achpanichkam is telling us, like he sort of gives us a brief description of why this stuff is happening in the first place, the four disruptions to our way of life. So um, the podcast just sort of delves into what Sam is saying when he talks about the score disruptions and what we can do to sort of acknowledge those disruptions and move forward. So um, the documentary sort of looks at what's happened since and the podcast takes a bigger look back, a step back even further to mm. say, like, this is how we got here in the first place. Yeah, it, it strikes me watching the film Thunder Bay is kind of this unique I don't know what kind of boilerplate where a lot of you know our, our assumptions and a lot of our hopes for truth and reconciliation are getting tested um, can you talk about why that is is it like the fact that it, it's kind of like a big city where there's a unusually large indigenous population or is, is it because uh, it's far north I mean what is it about Thunder Bay yeah, well, I mean, I think that there's just a spotlight on Thunder Bay. I wouldn't say Thunder Bay is unique in any single way because I see these issues happening from, you know, coast to coast to coast across Turtle Island. I mean, we have bodies being recovered in BC. We have fishermen on the other uh, the other side of, of the, the country that are having their rights tested that are having, you know, nets cut and burned while RCMP sit by and watch idly. Um, we have Kenora, you know, there was, there was an occupation there in 1974. I mean, like the, the like Thunder Bay is not unique. Mm. Then like this, this systemic racism and police brutality and everything else that we've experienced is happening all over Canada. Like just look at the healthcare system in Quebec with Joyce Etchwan, mm. like prime example, like this Thunder Bay is not unique to, to racism and discrimination. It's just, there happens to be a national spotlight on this because I think we, we were able to get national attention for one by having Tanya write about these columns in the Toronto Star. Um, like we did have reporters here at CBC Thunder Bay that, that tried to shine a light on this as well. Um, but for, for mainstream media, Indigenous issues aren't really something that they look at mm. because legacy media plays a role in systemic racism uh, with the stories that they choose to tell and choose not to tell. So um, yeah, like Thunder Bay's Thunder Bay's not, not unique in, in any way, shape or form. And indeed the point you're making kind of plays out at the beginning of the film when, when Tanya says that, you know, she, she went to Thunder Bay to cover an election story and it was talking to some of the indigenous leaders in Thunder Bay. They're like, well, you should be covering this story instead. These these kids were being found dead in the river. And mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that just kind of illustrates your point that it's I guess when things are being sort of directed from Toronto, it's it's kind of hard to 
see the the local perspective. Exactly. I guess along with that, though, is um, the question of, you know, you, you mentioned some of the CBC reporters in the area, too, and they were featured in the documentary as well. They they take they took this story very very personally. There's not much in the way of, you know, journalistic the vaunted journalistic detachment. Um, the, the reporters there are feeling it, and I, I you know, I wonder if that plays a part in it too. This kind of, I don't know, this kind of old fashioned point of view about journalism. You need to be detached. You can't, you know, invest yourself in the story. You have to be you know, clinical and cynical and, and all that. And it's really kind of hard to do that with these stories when you're going to these communities. Mm -hmm. Well, and again, like it comes, it goes back to legacy media and the role that they play in systemic racism, like nowhere, anywhere else in the world would the death of seven students fall on deaf ears or little action or national outcry. Like this is a this is a tragedy. What about the number of our missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Two Spirit? Like th the numbers are staggeringly high, and there's no national outcry. It. it I don't want to say Canadians are apathetic, mm. but I just I think that they've just been fed this message so long that we're at fault for our own demise, mm -hmm. that um, we're to be blamed. So there's no guilt on the rest of Canadians. But again, this is a false narrative that we're at fault for our demise. There are policies within the Indian Act that control and regulate our every move, our every action. There are laws across this country that Canada continually breaks Yet Canadians don't look at that. There is like so much money being spent by the federal government to fight First Nations children when they've already been ruled against 10 times that they're discriminating against them. Yet Canadians aren't outraged by that. How much money did the government just spend on an election? But if any First Nation chief ever got accused of spending this much money, they would be under third party management. Why is there no outcry from Canadians about that? That's such you know? a great point. <laughs> like, and and I don't I, I struggle with this daily about why Canadians aren't more outraged or aren't taking a better stand. And I, all I can think of is the lack of education that mm. they don't know the truth about our history being controlled and led by colonial law. And also it's so ugly. It's so tragic. It's something worse than a, from a horror movie, bodies recovered, the number of MMIW, that it's too ugly and hard for them to hear. So they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear the truth. Like those are only things that I could only guess why, why Canadians aren't more outraged by what's happening. But yeah, that's... The film makes it very, very clear though that, you know, the... <laughs> the young indigenous people are brought to Thunder Bay to go to high school because there's no high school um, in, in their communities further north. And, you know, it, it's strikes one as, and I think the point is made in the film, which is probably why I'm able to quote it as, and recycle it as my own ideas, although I know they're not, but the, it, it's still a kind of residential school system, isn't it? That, it totally is. Yeah. 
It totally is. It's a modern day residential school system, just like the jails that house so many First Nations youth or even adults. Again, it's just a modern day residential school. And again, this is all colonial law. This is all, you know, colonial law. And, and this is our history that not too many people know about. Mm. The, the documentary itself, I was trying to think like exactly what kind of documentary is it? Maybe you could help me out because it's, it's not a whodunit. Like Tanya and Michelle aren't trying to get to the bottom of a mystery. They're, they're trying to draw attention to the issue. It's bringing in all these systemic issues around systemic racism, systemic colonialism. Um, but it's also very hopeful about, you know, trying to memorialize the victims, get them noticed, get them attention, trying to find answers, trying to find justice. How do you describe the documentary to people? Well, I think I would describe the documentary as another learning tool to learn about the injustice that Indigenous people face. And I think that if you can learn the injustice that we're, that we're plagued with based on laws and policies and bro broken laws and policies by federal government, then maybe allies would back us and help elevate our voices when we ask for change, when we demand justice. And I mean, we're not asking for anything more than anyone else has. All we're asking is for the same. So, I mean, who in Canada has to send their, their child, their 13-year-old child away for school? No one but First Nations people. And now more and more First Nations people are moving to the city. But it shouldn't be forced. It should be a choice that they want to make. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be because they don't have a high school, because they don't have a hospital, because they don't have, you know, infrastructure, because they don't have clean drinking water. They should move where they want to, when they want to, not because they're forced to, because their government won't take care of them. Mm -hmm. Is there signs that things are improving in Thunder Bay? All this attention perhaps is waking the locals up, that all this national attention, even the police. <laughs> I mean, I want to be an optimist mm -hmm. and, and say yes. But when it comes to the police, I don't know that I'm there yet. Mm. But what I am hopeful is that, you know, more and more of, of our people, Anishinaabe people, have woken up. And they are returning to their own systems, to their own knowledge, to their own traditions. And to me, that is hopeful. Mm. because they've shed that narrative that's been forced down their throats that we should assimilate that, you know, that we're not as knowledgeable or, you know, we can't do it. Right. There's always been that, that narrative said about us and more and more people are waking up and, and realizing that that's just bull. So mm. that gives me hope. You know, I see more and more mums doing um, ceremonies with their babies and giving them traditional names and being out on the land, right? Like practicing our traditional knowledge and our traditional skills. And that's what gives me hope. From the point of view of, you know, trying to change those narratives, tell 
you know, indigenous stories by indigenous storytellers is, is that getting easier? Are, are you finding uh, more reception to, or, or more opportunities to get to tell indigenous stories and, and allowing indigenous people to tell their own stories um, as opposed to maybe a few years ago? Yes. I think that that's, um, that that's definitely been one change for sure. Where that's lacking though, is um, like more and more indigenous storytellers are being allowed to tell their stories, but I don't see indigenous storytellers at the top of that storytelling chain. So, I mean, what I mean by that are like the senior producers, the editors, Mm. right? Like, Mm-hmm. Those things kind of take a while too for you know people to work their way up. I mean, there's still a system, and everybody has to start at the bottom and and work their way up too. So I mean, those those are kind of long term changes as well. Mm-hmm. But why do they have to be long term? Well, I mean, true enough. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, I'm I'm a storyteller right now, and I can tell you you know, without a doubt that there are many, many qualified producers and editors that are not in senior positions within the CBC. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's, again, going back to sort of these old fashioned ideals about, you know, who's telling the story that, I mean, we've seen this in a a lot of different ways, Um, you know, sending people who are uh, reporters who are black out to cover Black Lives Matter and them being accused of, well, you can't be objectionable being a black person covering Black Lives Matter. Um, I, I guess simply not true. That's simply yeah. not true. All it means is that they have more experience, right? That they're more of the expert on this topic than any white journalist. A white right. journalist isn't going to understand the importance of their culture or the importance of their struggles because Mm -hmm. they've never had to face any of those struggles. So how do you write about racially or systemic discrimination when you've never experienced or felt it? You have no knowledge of it. How do you report on that? To me, that seems like sending someone out to do a story that's uneducated on the topic. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't even make sense why you would do that. Right. But that's that's just one of the excuses that they say to us to keep us down. No, you can't tell those stories. You're too biased. Maybe to wrap up, um, this is not the only um, movie by Indigenous storytellers at the Guelph Film Festival. It's actually one of several mm-hmm. um, for like film festivals like Guelph. Um, what do they sort of do to, to help sort of spread the word and, and help tell these stories? I guess, you know, how, how does, how, where does sort of a, a film festival like this fit into uh, sort of your goals to, to tell these stories and help spread those messages? Good question. Good question and hard to answer since I've only been involved with one film festival. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I mean, I, I think that it's, it's a, a space to share our stories and to get the, the word out. Um, usually festivals draw a lot of attention. So I think it's good to bring attention to our, to our stories, to our truths. Perfect. Well, Jolene Banning, uh, 
we can tell you have a very busy household. Uh, so <laughs> we will let you get back to it. Uh, but I, I appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to talk to me today about the movie. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you're able to edit around the, the noise of my grandchildren playing in the background. This is, no. this is one of the struggles with working from home. No problem. And once again, that was Jolene Banning. Uh, you can watch Spirit to Soar as part of the Guelph Film Festival. I almost called it the Guelph International Film Festival. It was the Guelph International Film Festival for years. It was GIF. It was such a lovely abbreviation, GIF, but now it's GIF. So uh, I hope you enjoyed that joke because uh, it tested well with Candace earlier. <laughs> um so yeah, the Guelph Film Festival, you can find all information about the Guelph Film Festival at guelphfilmfestival.ca. You can find out how you can watch this year's films. They are mostly online. Um, almost all of the Guelph Film Festival events are online. And you can certainly check out the movies that way, including Spirit the Soar. If you want to check out Halloween Kills, though, you will have to go to the theater. And we did in order to review it. And that's coming up next. You are listening to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. It's Halloween. We've been trick-or-treating. We got a whole bag of You candy guys should not be out here right now, okay? It's not safe. <laughs> You're gonna kill me? <laughs> Satan, not today. Oh, I'm so scared. Are you guys alone? Where are your parents? No. No, we're waiting for our friend. And, like, there's a creepy man in a white mask, and he keeps, like, trying to play hide-and-seek with us, and he he's like, he's a <laughs> Where did you see him? He's just hiding behind trees. And he pops out like, peekaboo. I mean, we're not three years old. Come on, man. Oh, look, there he is. Oh, hello. Hello. Dennis's mask. Run! Go home now! Before he kills us all, get out of here! Run! Do not turn around! Keep going home! And that was a clip from Halloween Kills. It's the new film from David Gordon Green, and it stars Jamie Lee Curtis, Judy Greer, Andy Matichek, Will Patton, James Jude Courtney, Robert Longstreet, and Anthony Michael Hall. All right. I am now being joined on the Zoom by Candice Lepage. Candice, how are you today? I'm doing all right. Should oh, that, I, that should I extrapolate? <laughs> no, <laughs> doing all right means I'm good. <laughs> yeah, that's we thoroughly unpacked that. Uh, <laughs> we're here to talk about Halloween kills. Um, and boy, did it kill. Um but, you know, obviously this was the Candace choice. Um, so if, if people are unawares about why you would want to see Halloween Kills Candace, why did you want to check this one out? 
Well, let me start by telling you a story. Oh, good. <laughs> story of a time I was at friend's cottage and it was late in the season. This was a winterized cottage and there were a few other winterized cottages in the area, but it was clearly a, a like a seasonal cottaging area. A lot of the cottages empty out when it's not summer. And so we were, it was late in the season or maybe it was early in the season. I don't remember if it was like Thanksgiving or Easter or something like that, but it was definitely not at peak cottaging season. So mm-hmm. there really were not a lot of people around. Mm-hmm. So we went out for a walk and immediately, as soon as we left the sort of drive that, that left the cottage and got onto sort of the main road area, I heard a guitar clearly performing the Halloween theme song. And I went, oh my God, let's go that way. And so then I led myself and my friend towards the Halloween theme song to my friend, of course, going, why are we going towards the scary music? (laughs) And I was like, well, because clearly I'm the first person to die in the movie. And if there's someone over there who likes the Halloween theme song so much that they're literally performing it on their guitar in, in their driveway or something i want to know that person Mm -hmm. so so yes i'm the person who goes towards the scary music when i hear it the halloween theme song is one of the all-time best theme songs of all time john carpenter is a master at somehow both theme songs and movies Mm -hmm. um which you know you don't get so much (laughs) happens a little little often um and despite the fact that he kind of reached a peak and then went significantly downhill for some of the late nineties. Um, he's still, he, he's still a master. So obviously when the first Halloween came out a couple of years ago, uh, yes, sign me right up. And then here we are Halloween kills, which I was looking forward to like everybody last <laughs> year. Um, but you know, something happened last year that, it just it just didn't come together, and so they didn't release it, and they put, they put it out this year instead. Um, but yeah, yeah. So uh, if anybody is surprised by the fact that I wanted to watch Halloween Kills on the uh, you know week that it was released, then they just don't know me very well, and they weren't they haven't been listening for the last God, how long have we been doing this now? Five years? It, it four is this year four or are we uh, in year five? I think we might be in year five, but I don't know. Don't ask me. I don't math very well. And I walk towards the scary mu- music. So that's right. That's right. Uh, that was a journey. Uh, not one that told us what you thought of the film, though. It- <laughs> <laughs> I can also be very succinct in in. I, I have a succinct statement ready. OK, for this film. Awesome. Um, I believe that this film was well made mm-hmm. well acted for the most part mm-hmm. looked amazing had a score that i really enjoyed and i listened to a number of times yesterday um and i don't see myself ever watching it again mm-hmm. because uh it made me very angry but mm-hmm. not because i mean it was because of what the movie was doing but but it was purposely doing those things and it was purposely trying to make me angry. 
Mm-hmm. So it achieved what it was, as far as I'm concerned, I think the movie achieved what it had set out to do. I know there are a lot of other people who think that it was all over the place or that it was confusing, but I think they had a very clear idea of who the bad guy was and they executed it perfectly and it was uncomfortable to watch mm-hmm. <laughs> because everybody was the bad guy very the very 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 bad guy everyone every Mm. single person in this film deserved to die Mm -hmm. except maybe two people because they were stuck in a hospital room (laughs) but every single person in this film deserved to die and i'm okay with that i'm gonna take uh an opposite tack not to say that i liked it but i do think it is a deeply confused uh movie like first of all i don't know who the main character in this is because the the person who is not only typically the main character in these movies, but the person who's the main character in this, the previous film um, is sidelined throughout all of it. Uh, There are different main characters at different times, including entirely a a character who is um, part of the, the plot in the last movie. And then an entirely new, well, he's not a new character, but he's, um, a reemerged character, shall we say, uh, the Tommy Doyle character played by Anthony Michael Hall, who I think does a reasonably good job on the acting side. I I don't think that he has served well script wise. I it, there's a very middle chapter feeling to this that um, we know we know how it begins, we know how it ends. Now we, part two is just about how we get from the beginning to the end and. So much of this is about cooling it, cooling the heels and setting stuff up for the for the final confrontation, whatever that is. I'm actually not even terribly interested in it because I, I think they really kind of drained it. I mean, it, it's so weird because, like you said, it's well made, it's well scored, it's well acted. Uh, the actors are good, Um you know, talented actors like Judy Greer and Will Patton and Anthony Michael Hall. Um, but it, it just, I have no interest in seeing how this ends. It's just, yeah, yeah. It, it just squanders every bit of goodwill from that first film, which did have a point, which did have a point of view. And I understand the point of view in this one, but it is so confused. It, it, it is, it's, drowning in a sea of its own confusion it's like i understand like and i appreciate that the script gives the characters like a character and is not doesn't just treat them as cannon fodder um tr- you know gives them bits of humor gives them bits of characterization um but then the script ends up treating them like can- cannon fodder in the end anyway and we get, you know, these sequences. It's not just that Michael Myers is a killer in this one. He's a sadistic killer. He's a torturous killer. Um, there's a scene where he, very early on, where he attacks a married couple. And he's, you know, the wife is injured and bleeding. And he takes her husband and flays him over the kitchen counter and starts putting knives in him like a pincushion. And it's just like, you know what? It's not like Michael Myers is an innocent little lamb who was pushed too far, like it's falling down or something. But, you know, 
he th- there was an efficiency as of him as a killer. This is sadistic. Like it's not just enough to stab someone. You got you don't have to impale them repeatedly on the banister and then twist their neck. It, there's just a, a, an air of sadism that I don't like, and the whole thing about the town of Haddonfield basically being driven mad. I do like that idea. That idea is interesting, but to do it right, to to do it with the cultural relevance that they want to bring with this, you can't have Michael Myers running around killing people sadistically. It's like, are these people really out of, out of their minds with anger about this when there is the guy is literally walking around town cutting people <laughs> to bits. Um, it would have been a much more interesting film if, you know, the end of uh, the previous film where you assume he's dead, you have, you know, the firefighters go in, don't find a body. Uh-oh, what do you do? Maybe he's still wandering around killing people or looking for his next victim. And then the town goes mad and you make the story about that. That is, and I, I hate, doing a review where you're basically rewriting the movie but it it just that's the more compelling version of this as opposed to one where you have people losing their minds about a sadistic killer walking around when there's a sadistic killer walking around it's like you want to make the point about people losing their minds and people um going too far and i mean that that one hospital scene where they're chasing around the poor escape mental patient that that is harrowing in its way but the the reaction of the town is not necessarily unfounded when you have michael myers walking around killing people and not just killing people but killing them in the most sadistic public way possible it's like you know yeah it it just doesn't work the way they think it, it 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 works yeah so i definitely hear what you're saying Um, And I have counter arguments for many of those things. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So first, Laurie Strode uh, Mm -hmm. is basically in a hospital room the whole uh, movie. And yes, I am disappointed by that. And I'm disappointed that they underused Jamie Lee Curtis. But I also recognize that this is the middle part of a three-part film series. And they set up um, they very much set up the fact that the the way this ends is when Laurie kills Michael, mm-hmm. which I think any person who watches the Halloween franchise, I mean, even all of the other Halloween films that involved both Laurie and Michael were always set up that Laurie kills Michael, Michael kills Laurie. That's the only, that is, that is the balance that is supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. So by sidelining her to a hospital room for this whole film, she exits this movie um, stain free. Mm-hmm. She did not take part in the activities that made the entire city of Haddonfield deserve to die. So she <laughs> remains the heroine. So we can still root for her in the third film because mm-hmm. she did not do any of, of these things. Um, I would have preferred if they had taken out her incredibly clunky expository narration at the end yeah i i don't think jamie lee curtis really enjoyed even delivering those lines it did not sound (laughs) good it did not sound Um, natural no no um uh so and it's just like uh 
how stupid do you think your audience is? Like we, we all got it. We understood. I mean, maybe we didn't because clearly there's a lot of division. Uh, some people are maybe, I don't know. Um, well, let me just say too, uh, there's also no shortage of YouTube videos uh, right now that are titled the end of Halloween kills explained. So they went out of their way to explain the end of Halloween kills in movie. And we still have <laughs> a dozen or more videos about yeah. the ending of Halloween kills explained. Though, to be fair, I have watched a lot of those, you know, the ending of whatever explained and none of them are like explaining something that's complicated. It's just like, <laughs> Oh, we're just going to give you the actual end, the spoiler. So you don't have to watch the film. Um, so yeah. So there's one thing on, on the Lori really not taking part in this film. Um, the uh, other thing I was thinking about. And so during that, that first um really sort of horrible death scene where Michael does kill the two neighbors. You know, he comes out of the the Strode, like Lori's house and then wanders to the next door neighbors and kills them. And I was feeling the same when I was watching it. I was like, this is so brutal. Like, why is he doing this? And then I remembered he loves his death tableaus. He is actually a very imaginative killer and imaginative in what he does with the bodies after he kills them. So in the the original Halloween film, he he kills all of Laurie's friends and she finds them all set up. Like one of them, PJ Souls's character is like on the bed with lights and candles and everything and um uh his whatever Judith Myers um uh gravestone and everything like he he is the personification of evil, a six-year, a six-year-old personification of evil in a man's body with a humane amount of strength, who is just taking out all of his psychosocial trauma in art therapy. His art therapy is these creative because that's I, I thought the same thing I was watching. I was like, this is so over the top. And then I just had to remember, I'm like, no, he does this. This is actually his thing. And even in the um, Little John and Big John thing, which I loved. They were the only people in this town who did not deserve to die. They were the only people in this town who understood the effect that Michael Myers had on the town and did not succumb to it. Um, but he set them up in a death tableau too. And people were very upset about that. And I'm just like, you all need to go straight back to the canon and watch it again, because <laughs> it is actually there. Like it is honest to God there. Um, and then there was a third thing that you brought up in your very <laughs> big thing. But generally, like, not that I want to sound like Jamie Lee Curtis, because I watched a hilarious clip of her saying, this film is about trauma. It's about trauma, trauma, PTSD, <laughs> trauma. And it was hilarious, but it's also so true, right? Like the first one was about, you know, being able to be terrified by your own, like right in your own neighborhood in the bright light of day to not feel safe in your own safe place. But the second one that we're going to call Halloween 2018 is mm. about what happens to the person who lives through that and does not get help for it. Mm -hmm. But this one, this, you know, third film, we'll say, mm -hmm in in this new halloween you know series is about what happens to the rest of the town because we're quickly introduced to this town of people who have not 
who still also have not dealt with their own history, mm-hmm. right? Like people who are affected by it come back together every year to sort of like to to trauma porn it, right? Mm-hmm. To talk about like this is the terrible thing that happened to me and whatever. And it's just like this is not actually dealing with it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I beg of people, if you survive a traumatic event and many of us have survived traumatic events, in fact, I'd say all of us have some more traumatic than others, Mm -hmm. actually just ask someone for help or find out about it or just do something because yeah. Yeah. We are just, humans are just hurt as a species. And for whatever reason, we're easily hurt, but we we have beat it out of ourselves as a society that we can just as easily ask for help. And so instead we're having fights about whether or not we should wear masks or, you know, believe the vote count or all these other things. No. And I I think a lot of that is understood. I, I think that the inherent problem is that you have, um, this movie that clearly has some like very lofty ideals about some of the issues it wants to deal with, but it, it's also a Halloween movie, you know, say what you want about, you know, ones like Halloween four or Halloween five or Halloween resurrection. Um, I mean, they're made cheaply. Uh, you go in, you just expect people to be slaughtered and that's fine. That's the way it is. Um, you know, say what you want about any of those movies they they deliver what they promise uh, it's cheap thrills cheap stunts uh, this film is halloween kills is not cheap though and it keeps rubbing up against itself um it seems like it, it's the product of two entirely different screenwriters having slapped together different drafts of their script even though it's the exact same duo um that wrote the previous chapter and wrote this one because what you're talking about there, the the mythology, I, I do grant you that I, I did remember that, you know, Michael Myers does set up a nice grisly scene in the original film. Um, so he, he, the art therapy thing I get, the thing I don't get is just like sort of the maliciousness of the killing, um, like the over the top, you know, it's not just enough to stab someone once or cut their throat. They must be stabbed again and again and again or you have to stick your thumb in their eyes and all of these other horrible things um but the whole thing about the mythology of what happened that night in 78 and it's also kind of essentially addressing the mythology of the series overall even the ones they've they've retconned out is this essential question of like is michael myers a man or is he like the embodiment of the boogeyman. He is like this ethereal force. And the film likes to push and pull on this idea, but it never settles anywhere because there's this whole subplot in the film. It's like Michael Myers is coming to the hospital because that's where Laurie is. And the two of them must fight. It's the whole Ken Watanabe line from, <laughs> from Let Godzilla. Them fight. Let them fight. <laughs> but... Um, then like people start making a point. It's like, well, no, Michael Myers didn't escape and go searching for Lori. He was driven to her house by the the, the Loomis, Previous the next generation. Evil doctor. Yeah. Um, 
he, you know, he, this this whole thing about this mythology between the two was his invention. He brought them together, and Michael Myers found himself in the middle of nowhere and just went about his business. But then the film comes back to it in this in the end. It's like it's clear, and it does it in the clumsiest way possible with Michael Myers staring out one window and Laurie Strode staring out another window, and you can, I, I just had that image in my head of Ken Watanabe and Godzilla going. Nature must restore balance. Let them fight. <laughs> it, it just, I, I wish he had brought in Ken Watanabe to play the new doctor so he could just say, let them fight. And then. <laughs> yeah. I, and I, I get it. But I also think the reality is, is that Lori is the heroine of this new series. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we see the two of them, you know, sort of mirroring each other at the end, it's not anything because of Michael. It's because Lori has to recover from her trauma. And, you know, she's, she, the first film was all about how she prepared her whole life for this fight to come. And in the end, she failed. Mm-hmm. And so the next film is going to be her, her figuring out a new way to deal with this trauma. And, I I don't I don't know David Gordon Green very well, um, <laughs> so I I I don't know how well he's going to to deal with recovery from trauma and how so much of this actually is about. It's not about revenge. It's not about fighting back. It is about forgiveness and acceptance and love. And I don't know how you make a horror film about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it feels like that that mirroring at the end is her realizing she is the person who has been affected, and that like it, it's it's not it's not the the balance, it's not her and Michael, it's me. I I am affected. I thought I had to kill Michael to get this done. I still thought I had to kill Michael to get this done in this film. And I don't know what my next step is. Of course, there's also some really terrible things she's going to find out at the beginning of the next film. So we'll see mm-hmm. what what happens there. By I'm, the way, what I did yeah. really like about this whole, you know, it's not about you, Lori. He's not interested in you. Um, despite that, her her granddaughter... Mm-hmm. who I have, have feelings about. Um, but <laughs> when uh, there's a really sort of horrible kill that she's watching and she's trying to taunt Michael to stop killing the person and to come after her. And I'm just like, did you not hear anything that you said to your own grandmother? It's not about you. He doesn't care about you. Yeah, he does not. He cares about killing. He wants to do one thing and it's to kill. He's essentially Jaws. Like, yeah. But I mean, that's the thing is they, they don't they want to have it both ways. They want to have the grand arcing mythology. They also want to have the kind of more down to earth thing. There, there's a thing at the end. And I actually thought when I saw the trailers for this, I thought it was an interesting idea. What if the town rebelled against like Michael and you know, the hunter became the hunted. That would be, that, again, 
the the film is kind of getting at that, but then not really because it's a, also a Halloween movie at the same time. But the I, you know the whole thing at the end where the townspeople get together and start like scourging Michael Myers. It's it's like the passion of Michael Myers for three minutes in this film, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, and then it's it's at the same time, there's this voiceover that's like, no, 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 he's not just a man. He is transcending. He is, you know, it's he's the talisman of evil. And it's just like, what way are we going here? Is this about how one tragic thing can change your life and how you deal with that? Is this about like hysteria? Is this about uh, like supernatural evil and how it takes this bodily form of this one random person and the whole thing about how he keeps returning to his house so he can look out his sister's window or is he looking into his soul or is he looking across this town that he is uh so horrified and betrayed all this like it's it's all too much like they have to pick a lane and and decide what like what is this movie about what is this series about and I feel like the, it, the movie's just drowning in its own ideas about what it is. And so it can't really lock onto anything and you can't really enjoy it. It just, it's, it, it needed to find something to sort of lock on and what, you know, and, and then decide, is it a Halloween movie or is it uh are we deconstructing the Halloween movie? The, how, the, the previous film, Halloween 2018 did that really well. Um, this one does not, and I feel it kind of ruins any possibility of getting, I mean, it could, it could be that Halloween ends is a really satisfying concluding chapter to this. Uh, I will reserve that judgment, but at the same time, um, I'm kind of drained of (laughs) any desire to, to get to the bottom of the Michael Myers, Laurie Strode showdown. It's, it's, it's just not something I'm. I left the movie terribly curious about. Yeah. Um, I will say uh, this film was clearly made by people who um, really loved the first and the second Halloween. Mm -hmm. Um, There, there was a lot of um, going back to those films. And interestingly, um, this, this second sort of new film really had a lot of Halloween too in it, even though mm-hmm. it essentially uh, like deleted Halloween too as as anything that really happened, mm-hmm. um, or sort of you know retconned it a bit because presumably in in Halloween too, Lori goes to the hospital and mm-hmm. things happen in Haddonfield while she's at the hospital, and eventually Michael comes to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so. That does not happen anymore, according to this timeline. But presumably, she still goes to the hospital. Obviously, like, you know, she 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 was in shock. She had to go to the hospital. So this now sort of shows us like what was going on in the rest of Haddonfield mm-hmm. during that time, immediately following, and changes a few things, but yet still keeps a few things. Um, you know, in some ways, by by moving them forward, like the whole. Um, mistaking a person to be Michael, you know, Loomis in number two sees someone dressed like Michael with the mask and thinks that it's him and chases him and shoots him. Mm-hmm. And um, 
after, and I don't think he actually uh, hits the person, but after having taken the shot, he sort of realizes, oh no, it's not Michael and starts like sort of saying, I don't think that's him, but it doesn't matter because there's this horrible car crash out of it. And the, the person um, is killed, this 17 year old boy. It's a really, it's kind of, but it, it really, it sort of showed that same thing, right? The like, Mm-hmm. everybody's on edge they just think everybody is michael and so they're acting wildly and in the second film as well the residents of haddonfield in in halloween 2 from the the 80s the residents of haddonfield l- go as a lynch mob to the old michael myers house and start like you know throwing rocks and everything at it they're basically sort of like attacking the home um but of course we retcon that because now that's where Michael was mm. and that's where they found him. But it was, I just kept seeing these things. I'm like, Oh, they're, they're actually introducing these things that they've sort of taken away from, from the storyline out of Halloween two and putting them back in here in a different way. So it's clearly people who really know the series very well. Mm-hmm. And or maybe, like, obviously I watch it a lot because I can <laughs> tell you the whole Um, but so uh, and then you know this it's the third it's the middle film who knows it's hard to say I I feel like until we see the the next one we can't necessarily say that some of the ideas were muddied or jumbled because maybe it was done on purpose I don't know all I will add is I wish that uh, the script had been up to uh, the dedication everybody brings to it, um, but uh, it is what it is. Which is a way, one way to end a movie review. Okay. <laughs> Goodness. How can people find you on the internet if they want to talk about Halloween too? <laughs> yes. You can find me everywhere on the internet at SIN48, C-I-N-N-4-8. And um, I'll take more than just your Halloween 2 takes. I will also take your 4 and 5 takes. Halloween 4 is my favorite. Uh, and especially your Halloween 6 takes, because who doesn't love Paul Rudd? Well, that's it for this week's show. We hope you liked it, and if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on our website at endcreditsradioshow.com. You can download it from the Guelph Politicast channel every Friday at Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google, and Spotify. Speaking of Spotify, you can get the playlist for much of the music that you hear on the End Credits show. Just open up Spotify and search for End Credits on CFRU. You can find us on social media on Facebook at End Credits Radio Show and on the Twitter at End Credits Radio. If you want to hear more from me, and why wouldn't you? I will be back here on CFRU tomorrow at 5 p.m. for News and Politics on Open Sources Guelph with Scotty Hertz. In the meantime, I am on social media at Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, or you can follow my News and Politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. And stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We will be back next Wednesday at 3 p.m. for another edition of End Credits. And we will see you then. Thank you.